Hello Diversifiers and welcome to Season 3! Holly here to say thanks for coming back. I know it's been a while, but as I'm sure you noticed, there's been some stuff going on in the world. This episode was recorded over the internet, because that's how life happens now. And due to the fact my internet has spent five months being overwhelmed as three separate people try to simultaneously use it 24-7, there are a couple of tiny glitches here and there. That, and because I spent so much time making sure everyone else sounded good, I forgot to plug my mic back in, so about halfway through you'll notice my sound quality go from okay to crystal clear radio smoothness. Our first guest is a brilliant comedian and altogether lovely person, and we reckon you'll love what she has to say. So without further ado, allow me to introduce Diversify Season 3, Episode 1, Assumptions, Epilepsy, and Dismantling the Normal with Maisie Adam. Bring in that theme tune. Turn out the light, open the curtain. Diversify. Kate just laughed because she didn't realise that we were going to be able to do the hello at the same time because we're not in the same room, are we, Kate? No, we're uh, sat behind computers, as are most people these days. Mm, We are at one with the machine. We have become the machine. We have stopped raging against the machine and have just joined it because it wasn't worth the effort. This is our first official Diversify episode with guests during lockdown so technical hitches aside it's all going okay (laughs) speaking of technical hitches aside she's definitely not a technical hitch if anything her existence on this earth might make me believe in a higher power and divine intervention it is Maisie Adam I mean best intro ever I can make people believe in a divine higher power purely through joining a zoom call i think that tells your audience everything about how technically minded we all are so i can understand why i get that intro we all feel like we're insanely powerful now that we've managed to master simply um the waiting room of a zoom call it was very exciting for me to let you into a waiting room for the first time i know you feel like you're on a right power trip like because in real life that would basically be you standing at the door only allowing everybody into the meeting one at a time it's like a little password game isn't it um it's a weird time at the moment isn't it what have you been doing Maisie, with your time in lockdown Not a lot is the answer, Kate. Not a lot. It's strange because you realise how dependent your job is on being around lots of other people at one time. Being in comedy, my week normally is gigging every night and then maybe recording some something for tv in the day or or maybe being in a writer's room and even then you're sat around a table with what five six other people so it it's been really weird to not be allowed to do that and to just try and write and also like i guess because there hasn't been for a long time and i I think at the point of recording still really isn't an end in sight there isn't an end date that we've been given so it's kind of you feel guilty for not writing 
But then at the same time, if you try and write a joke, by the time you get the chance to actually say it on stage and perform it, it might not be relevant by then. You know, my my five minutes on Dominic Cummings, no one's going to remember it by November. It'd be like now talking about the 2012 Olympics or something. It, it feels kind of futile trying to write relevant material sometimes. So, yeah, it's been a weird one. In all fairness, we have been reliving the joys of the 2012 Olympics quite recently on national TV. So in a way, it all comes around in the end. So by 2025, your type five on Dominic Cummings will be (laughs) super relevant again because he'll still be working in the government. My type five on Dominic Cummings will be the equivalent of when the Spice Girls stood on the taxis at the 2012 Olympics. It'll be something that, yeah, it happened years ago, but oh my God, it was iconic. That's what I'm hoping for. I'm, I'm here for it. Yeah, me too. So what I wanted to ask you, I saw your show in Edinburgh a few years ago. I had a great time and I went in on a whim and I I just raved about you afterwards for like a week. It was great. Cheers. And there's something I loved about it, which I think is happening in comedy a lot at the moment, turning your trauma into laughs. So why do you think that works so well? Why do you think it's such a useful tool? It's an interesting one. I think we... As, as people, and in particular also British people, we keep everything in, whether that's emotions and feelings or conversations around tricky subjects. There's often at comedy shows that the best bits are when someone talks about the elephant in the room and there's sort of a laughter that's kind of like a big re- sigh of relief of it's something that we've all been thinking or it's something that we all are embarrassed about or it's something that we all do and someone says it but says it rather than as a criticism or as a statement to try and evoke a debate or a discussion it's just it's just funny and that makes something i think very accessible to an audience having said that i still feel kind of strange about calling it trauma because with vague the show we're talking about my debut show most people do an introduction Edinburgh show that's sort of talking about who they are because no one has a clue who you are for your first one. So you kind of have to say, this is me, this is what I'm about, this is kind of my style of humour. However, when 2,000 odd people are doing that at a festival, you need to have something a bit a bit different. My favourite comedy is sort of anecdotal, observational. People, as I say, nudging each other next to you when you're watching a show going, oh my God, that's you, or isn't it funny, we all do that. And so I wanted to talk about just growing up uh, in in sort of North Yorkshire, which is where I'm from, and the incredibly like relatable experiences that most teenagers have growing up of you know going out for the first time or sort of the fashions and the tropes of those times. But you're looking for something that gives it an interesting spin. And for me, that was when I was 14, I was diagnosed with epilepsy, which kind of stood in like opposition to a teenage lifestyle, i.e., staying out late, getting drunk with your friends trying to be incredibly independent and not rely on parents or other people's support. So that's kind of what the show became. But whether or not I would describe that as trauma, I mean, I'm a product of this society as well in that like, I'll go, it's okay to say you're not okay, but also I'm the last person to say I'm not okay. So it may well be trauma, but I've never looked at it as trauma. For me, it's just something that I've lived with. I think it was traumatic at times, but whether I would describe my epilepsy as trauma, I think is perhaps a different thing. But I think you're right, on the whole, a lot of Edinburgh shows will go up and they'll take something that like, you're sat there as an audience member going, 
how are they going to make this funny? I feel really uneasy now. The first show that made me think that's an Edinburgh show was Louisa Omulan's What Would Beyonce Do? Oh my God, it's so amazing. She's amazing. Do you remember that? I, I think my friend Dan sent me a thing going, you need to watch this. And I looked it up and she's talking about like a brother who tried to take his own life. And she's talking about being super low, about relationships having broken down. Two minutes ago, she was having your belly laugh. And then she's talking about this. I remember sitting there going, ah, this has gone a bit Ted talky. I don't know how she's going to make this funny. And then she just said like one thing that sort of was a callback to what she talks about at the beginning. And it just like that relief again, that elephant in the room. The laugh is as much a sigh as it is a laugh. It's a, oh, thank God. We were all thinking it and she said it. So I think comedy is quite a cool tool in that it's one of the few things where you can do that. I've been thinking a lot about what makes Edinburgh comics or comics who do hour-long shows uh, in Edinburgh so special. Yeah. It's because when I look at a lot of these American massive comedians, they're very funny, but they just don't have that link that the Edinburgh shows do. Yeah, you're right. I think there is a type of comedy and um, it's not for everyone. I know loads of people who go, I can't be doing with that. You know, I don't want to hear about your parents' divorce 40 minutes in. I just want to laugh at how we all do the washing up but I I agree with you in that I think there's something really nice where you make something that isn't normally funny accessible through comedy and I think it's now going into other ways that we absorb comedy if you look at say Hannah Gadsby she's now got Nanette on Netflix and it's absolutely huge I watched John Robbins's Darkness of Robbins the other day on Netflix which was also nominated for best show along with Hannah and again they're talking about stuff where you're like oh my god this is you know, if you went for a drink with these people and they started telling you this stuff, you'd go, mate, are you okay? Like, you know, come on, let's let's talk about this. And you'd, you'd have a right deep discussion going, oh my God, I didn't realise stuff was so bad. And instead, they're standing on stage going, it's absolutely fine, I'm going to tell you how I'm feeling. And even more so, I'm going to make you laugh about it. And not laugh at me, but laugh with me because I'm that confident that what I'm going to talk about, you will have felt those things at some point. I think that's a cool direction for comedy to be going in. That Now audiences aren't just going and laughing and going, oh my God, yeah, my wife does that. They're now going along and going, oh shit, yeah, I remember feeling like that. It's given comedians, I feel, a chance to weave storytelling and narrative into what they do as comedians. Yeah, and most importantly, they're coming from different voices. So not only are we changing what comedy is covering, we're changing who's telling the stories as well, which I think is hugely important because for so long it's been the sort of same kinds of comedians, which is great and they're, they're funny and it's it's fine. And I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm saying that we should be able to also have this person talking about something like sexual assault or like depression or like a breakup and it be hilarious and come from a voice that we've not heard before. Do you think there are any subjects that need to be censored in comedy or do you think if it's done in it's the right way you can discuss anything? There's been a, a kind of big thing in the news about Little Britain has been taken down because of its use of blackface and there's been several others that have sort of come into question since then. Um, I guess sort of in the, in the wake of everything that's been going on with Black Lives Matter, people are kind of reassessing and I think rightly so. But in terms of what you should censor, it sounds like such a cop-out answer, but at the end of the day, it's about, is it clever? And do you come across like you're laughing at these communities? Or are you coming across as somebody who's making fun of the problems that exist, you know? Are, are you 
pointing out how ridiculous the racism is that is existing or are you just being racist and i think there's room there for nuance um so for an example one of the ones that have come into question i think is the major character in faulty towers but he his character in that is incredibly narrow-minded incredibly bitter about the past incredibly idiotic you don't laugh with the major and go oh my god he's so right you go jesus christ can you believe people think like that and i think there's room there to go well we're laughing at that and then you look at something like come fly with me which was only 10 years ago you've got a a white man dressing up as a african caribbean woman blacked up putting on the accent and no one's saying that that, I think her name was Precious, the one that ran the coffee shop, wasn't it? And it was always closing. And her defining feature was that she was so lazy, so would like throw away all the yes. things so that she could get the day off. Exactly. Should that be her only trait? And secondly, should it be portrayed by a white man blacking up? No. You have to think of who that's speaking to. Because I went to a school that was like the biggest, we had an associated six one, but it was, it was huge. We had like 1300 students and there was one black person in my year. My exposure wow. to black people was not huge at all. The only way I'm taking in black people is this one kid in my year. That doesn't mean I leave school thinking every black person is like precious and come fly with me. But what subtleties do I have then going forward? As you say, Holly, of going, oh, well, where did they get the idea that she would be so lazy? Why would that be her trait? So then there's a prejudice that's that's implanted in you, I think. So to go back to your question, Kate, it's about what you're projecting, I think, what you're projecting forward about the people you're discussing. And if you're punching down and it's not clever and it's not your place to discuss it, don't do it. Like, just think of something funnier or let your friend who knows that experience tell it. God, the amount of times I have blokes coming on stage starting the thing with as a male feminist and then proceeding to discuss the woman's experience and you're just thinking it's not your fight it's it's always from a place of well as as a father of two daughters I was really proud of the me too movement and you're going oh my god like there's better ways to articulate your admiration for a movement than bringing it back to your experience with the women in your life so it's about what angle you, you, you come from, I think. What angle you come from and what angle you're punching. But I, I acknowledge and I think there's nuance in there. And one of my favourite characters from the sitcom is Pam Shipman from Gavin and Stacey, Gavin's mum. You know, the one that's played by Alison Steadman. She's a product of living in sort of middle-class white Essex in a sort of 2.5 nuclear family. And so she has... She's basically a Karen from Facebook, isn't she? She's she's straight up there with she's protesting for the telephone mask because somebody's told her something and she's got these prejudices that just slip out and you laugh at Pam because you're going, Pam, you're so bloody naive. No one is laughing along with Pam going, she's so right, I agree with her there. It's nuanced, I think. I think you make some really interesting points about who you're laughing at. Also about like lazy comedy. Mm. You absolutely have the right to as long as it's not hate speech go up and say something that's really insulting yeah the problem is that people seem to think that you inherently have the right to have people laugh at it and in 2020 these jokes have just been done and done and done yes you're so right are you coming and saying something that's been said a million times before about a community that let's be honest is already not equal or are you coming and offering a new take on that 
I uh, moved over into comedy under a year ago and I noticed there seemed to be some changes on the open mic scene. I'm just wondering when you started doing comedy, what was it like being a woman on the stage? My relationship with that question is a constantly evolving one. As I'm sure you can imagine, you get asked a lot, what's it like being a woman in comedy? And my instinct, I want to say the old uh, answer of, it's exactly the same as being a man uh, comedian, because comedy is comedy. I'm always rolling my eyes when you get introduced as, we've got a female comedian on now, or people introduce you as a comedian or anything like that. But having said that, it is different. It felt when I was on the open mic circuit that that was a rare thing to see. It was kind of rampant with people having seen the big white male comedians that are selling arenas and then trying to replicate that in a, a room above an Italian restaurant. Sometimes I would, I would stand in the back of the room and watch these people die on their ass because they were doing the whole, you know, am I wife, am I right? That sort of comedy was right, but that's not to say that they were storming the gigs. And I think as, as difficult as it was to, to follow on stage somebody who's just died for five minutes because they were doing sexist material, it's encouraging to know that that is no longer progressing to the next level. It's getting stubbed out at the base level. And actually people with something interesting to say, when you're in these rooms above a pub at an open mic night, you don't want another person doing that sort of material. You want someone to come on and offer a, an interesting take on something. And it goes back to that first question we were discussing, somebody who makes something that you've never normally laughed at before really funny. So being a woman in comedy on the open mic circuit is tough but I'd rather be a woman in comedy on the open mic circuit than a yet another voice that doesn't need to be heard. Great answer. I like that. I have been a lot on a lot of lineups when I was in the open mic circuit where there's 18 acts on in a night and I'm one of two, maybe three women. You go up there and you do your experiences and the reaction if you're a woman and you talk about anything that's specific to a female experience. So if you talk about, I don't know, your boobs or your period or your, your experience dating as a woman, it doesn't even have to be as explicit, in inverted commas, as, as boobs or periods. But if you're just talking about a particular female experience, you can sometimes feel the room go, oh, it's a woman doing woman comedy. And you go, hang on, you've just had 10 blokes come up here doing knob jokes. Like they've all spoken about their knob. They've all spoken about their sex lives. They've all spoken maybe about poo. I come on here and talk about an uncomfortable bra and suddenly I'm, do I'm a woman doing woman comedy. And I've seen it. It can be the same for other minorities. I have a, a disabled friend who's a comedian and people will sometimes go, oh, she talks about it's a disability. Well, no, that's her life. You don't go and, and look at the able comedians going, oh, they keep mentioning how they were walking down the street. And it's like, that's just their experience. But here's, here's the thing, and I think you've kind of pointed it out perfectly. Um, any, any listeners to Diversify will know that I go on about this all the time. It's this understanding in society that the straight, white, male experience is the canvas on which everything else is painted. Yes. And therefore, if you deviate from that, yeah. it's very niche. Your experience is niche because you're not this person. We've been given a normal... So then anything else in that, as you say, it becomes niche. In the same way that there's that... Been re I'm reading Rennie Edo Lodge's 
why I'm no longer talking to white people about race at the moment. And she talks about the phrase non-white. And you're like, that's such a bad phrase because it's saying you're not this normal. And instead you should use black or you should use Asian. You should use what they are because that is its own thing in the same that I'm white, but somebody shouldn't be non-white. And the same goes for comedy. You, you can't go, we're now having a non-male comedian, which is essentially what you're saying when you introduce me as a female comedian. Just have a comedian. It's way more interesting to hear a story from a point of view that you don't live or you don't hear as much. Absolutely. And then you can either go, this is very different from me, this is very interesting, or you go, oh my god, yeah, I do that too. Oh, okay, so it can both show you new perspectives and make you realise, oh, black people are human, women are human, gay people are human. Yeah. Um, with that in mind, talking about, like, specific experiences we were originally talking about your experiences with epilepsy and how you bring that into comedy can you just explain a little bit about when you were growing up what Uh it was like for you what epilepsy is and how it has affected you yeah so uh about 14 years old I started just sort of my eyes would roll to the back of my head I'd still say stood up and everything so I'd be in a conversation like with you guys now and my eyes would just sort of flutter up like that. And after a few times of my mum and dad noticing it, they were like, what? And, and I never knew when it had happened. So it, it would last for about two or three seconds, no longer than five, I, I would say. And so we went to go and get it sort of checked out. And I did these tests that kind of made me look like 11 from Stranger Things with all these things stuck to me head. They said, uh, it's epilepsy. And we were really shocked at that because... Epilepsy, as far as we knew, was frothing at the mouth and something to do with a flashing light, um, which I think is still a really common perception of epilepsy. What I was having, it was at the time it was called petty mal. Uh, I think they're now just called childhood absence seizures. And they were fairly confident that it was a puberty thing and it would be gone by the time I was 17, 18. So they put me on this medication. I had to take a tablet in the morning and a tablet in the night and it worked fine um if i sometimes forgot to take my tablet at night i'd I'd occasionally do one in the morning and it, it was always in the morning if i hadn't taken a tablet and then as i started to get older so 16 me and my friends went to a festival and i think i'd forgotten to take my tablet the night before and then just purely out of the excitement of getting up the next day and going to a festival i'd had about four or five hours sleep Something which I didn't know was integral to epilepsy at the time, but since now know, sleep is a huge part for me of staying sort of risk-free. So I'd had about four hours sleep and hadn't taken my tablet and woke up just feeling kind of just sort of spaced out. But I, you know, was putting on this thing of like, no, come on, let's load up the car with all of the tents and the booze and everything. And we're in the car and we were in standstill traffic. I was eating a muffin at the time and I started rocking back and forward. I have no recollection of this, but my friend said I was rocking back and forward really aggressively. My arms locked up and was drooling everywhere. And they flagged someone down who knew first aid whilst they were waiting for an ambulance to come because they were terrified. I think I think they knew I was epileptic, but they had sort of the same approach to it as I did. I guess on paper I'm epileptic, but I take this tablet in the morning, a tablet at night, and I'm absolutely fine. So what was going on in this car had never happened before. I wasn't prepared for, my friends certainly weren't. And when I came round, I was in an ambulance at the side of the road. My tongue was all black because I'd been biting on it. 
I didn't know where I was. They were asking me, you know, who's the prime minister? Do you know these people? And I, I knew my friends, but I couldn't name them straight away. And I don't remember that this is all what they were telling me, you know, and I kept insisting I was fine. I remember doing that. I remember insisting I was absolutely fine. And I clearly wasn't. And so the paramedics explained to me, you've had a seizure. They asked if I wanted to go to hospital. I said, absolutely not. I want to go to this festival. I just didn't want to make a fuss. Uh, I remember I got to the festival site and we all went for like a big Yorkshire pudding with food in it. It was just like the best thing. Just, you know, after you, have, you, you faint, you just want something solid and, and you're back on your feet. And it was fine. And I thought that was weird. And then about two years later, and I had a seizure on the way to work, as in a full-on, uh, they call it a tonic-clonic, so you're, you're out on the floor. And both with this one that happened at the festival in 2011 and this one that happened on the way to work in 2012, I didn't tell my parents. I don't know what you guys were like at 16, 17, but you want your independence and you don't want to miss out on any of the things your friends are doing. And I kind of just got a bit, I think I thought what happened in 2011 and 2012 was back then. Clearly it was a, a phase. Then it happened in 2017 and I thought my mum and dad need to know. So I told them and we've since sort of learned that what I have is called juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. And it's not just in puberty. I'll have it for the rest of my life. And it's not just eye rolling that happens now. If I don't have my tablets and I don't have enough sleep, I'm at risk of having the seizures like I've just explained to you then and you have to be honest with yourself and I think you have to be honest with the people who care about you as well it's with anything else we're always saying be honest talk about it if I'd broken my arm I wouldn't try and cover it up and tell everyone I've just got a, a poorly elbow I think I've knocked it you'd, you'd say oh, I've broken my arm why I didn't do it with epilepsy I think was for the same reasons we have around mental health of not wanting to feel like something that has to be looked after not wanting to feel like something that's a burden and not wanting to feel different. So that's what Vague was about. And I've done it again, haven't I? I've gone on a really long answer about You've just answered all our your, questions your question, again. Your question was essentially what, what is <laughs> epilepsy? But as I've said, people always go, oh, you're epileptic. Are you going to be all right with a flashing light? And, and we did, you know, me and my mum and dad said it was, as soon as I got diagnosed that we all thought, and I think people still do, think that epilepsy is one type of thing where a strobe light goes off and you fall to the floor. And for a lot of people, that is the case. Me, for one, love a strobe light. Can't get enough of a strobe light. I'm absolutely fine with it. For me, it's sleep and taking the medication. I watched the letter to yourself that you wrote on YouTube. Oh, yeah. I think I saw it on YouTube. It was a really beautiful piece that I'm sure was really helpful for a lot of people with epilepsy. I just wondered if you had advice for someone who is maybe coming to the terms with the fact that they have worse epilepsy than they thought, or they've just discovered they have it, what would it be? Gosh, wow. Um, that's, that's such a good question. But if I was giving straight advice to people who had just discovered they'd got it, I'd say, like, don't jump to conclusions. So take each bit of information as it comes. It's really easy when somebody gives you a label that carries so much weight to assume, right, well, I won't be able to ever do that. I won't be able to ever do this. Won't be able... and, and that's not the case. There's far less stuff that is off limits than you'd think. The difficulty when I give this advice is that you're so aware that literally every single person's experience of epilepsy will be different in terms of what kind of epilepsy they've got and also how it affects them. So I don't want to sit here and go, it'll all be fine because I acknowledge that I'm kind of lucky in mind that it's now controlled and I don't have to worry and if if you do have a worse version of what you thought and again I think the advice would be the same don't have that new information and jump to the end that this is 
right, so this is something that I've got and it's massive and it's going to affect me in every way. Try and take it in your stride of, okay, this is what I've got. What steps do I need to do to manage that? And what things can I still control? So even though it's a condition that tells you you're not going to be in control, there are ways that you can still be in control. So I always say on the podcast, the fact that we don't really think about class a lot in this country. And I've heard you say that people make assumptions that you're working class just because you've got a Northern accent. It happens so much. And it's, I remember at Edinburgh my first year and I was having a, a nice debut run and someone came up to me and was like, can I just say it's so nice to see a northern working class woman having a really good fringe. And it came from a really lovely place. That's a really nice thing to say. But because I'm northern, you assume working class. I think when you say I'm from up north, people immediately imagine me living on like the set of Billy Elliot in these terraced houses with an outside toilet. And it's it's interesting because... In the same way, you hear somebody from London and I immediately think that they lived in sort of a detached house in those nice suburbs and went to really, really good schools and never had to worry for nothing. That again, going back to that normal of what we see on TV and what we hear on the radio is an RP accent. So then when you differ from that normal, it's the stereotypes that are presented. From the South, we get lots more pockets of stuff. So you hear about Essex people and how they're different to sort of West End people. And then you get sort of, uh, I don't know, like the the Southwest. And then anything North of the M25 is just all one big ether, really. One big set of poor people. Yeah. I still do a little bit of acting. And occasionally if something comes through and they're wanting a Northern accent, it's because they want something to seem humble and they want it to seem homegrown and she's done well for herself given her circumstances type character it's never a boss or it's never you know these big public personas or these big public roles it's sort of a housewife or a Hmm. something out of an alan bennett novel i feel like you're secretly trying to tell us that you're like secret northern royalty (laughs) i really hope that's the case yeah, you assume I'm working yeah. class, but actually I am Madam Maisie Adams III. But it, it is so interesting how what RP has done, which for people who don't know is BBC English yes. and then the old-fashioned Queen. It's interesting with, yeah, could the BBC do a show or, or could there be a play written that's about high society, but it's set in Newcastle? You feel like they wouldn't go for it. In, in, going back to what you're talking about of, of where I'm from, and I'm from I'm from a tiny village in North Yorkshire, and the nearest city to me is Leeds. But where I went to school was in a town called Harrogate. It's one of the most middle class places in the world. But you then go down to London and speak with this accent. If I say I'm from North Yorkshire, they'll have an assumption. And if I said near Leeds, they stick with that same assumption. But if I was to go really specific and say, well, my nearest town is Harrogate, suddenly the lad drinks cream teas and goes for afternoon tea at Betty's and, you know, is is always in the spa water. I don't know. It's, It's interesting because I went to a really good school. It was a state school. I mean, the fact that I feel like I have to clarify that it was a good school, but it was still a state school, I think speaks something about class as well. But I went to a really good school in Harrogate. It was incredibly white, incredibly middle class, um, insulated in terms of, of the kids who were at my school. Their parents probably went to that school 
and were from Harrogate. It feels like one of those towns where people are born there, live there and die there because it's comfortable. You know, if you want to live on the edge, you go to Leeds. I mean, how much does that speak if you're going to Leeds to go and see a bit of culture? It's so funny that you mentioned Newcastle because my brother and my sister are from Newcastle. They have very, very light accents. And my brother is training to be an officer in the army. He was like, yeah, they're going to neutralise our accents because, you know, you can't understand them if you're from this place or that. This is his words, not mine, obviously. Yeah. He was like, oh, no, I'll be all right. And I was like, you'll be all right because you don't have an accent. He was like, yeah, I don't have an accent. It's light. It's awful, though, because I instinctively knew that wasn't going to happen to him. But he's right. His accent is so light. But also, what does not having an accent mean? It is the assumption again, much like, and I'm bringing it back, I'm flogging this horse, said the vegan. It comes down to the fact that RP, which is an accent, is considered a non-accent, is made up to make middle-class South the norm. Yeah, we've spoken about with race and gender, and, and it's no different with this accent, is that we have something that is the normal. So if you differentiate from that, rather than it being its own thing that is just under the umbrella of accents, it's non-RP in the same way that people get called non-white or B-A-M-E or a minority. Why can't you just be your own thing and it be under the umbrella of everything? Why does it have to be non what the norm is? So I've, I feel like sort of what we've come up with is then there are like two facets to class. One of them is literally some people have more opportunities and that can be affected by race, gender, sexuality, all this stuff, disability. But literally, you cannot get out of this class because we just don't have the social mobility we used to have. And then the other one is performative class. Performative, yeah. What they used to do is they used to teach these young women secretaries how to speak, quote unquote, better so that they could go in and just not talk about the fact that they were working class because Mm -hmm. they sounded like they were middle class. So it's kind of... It's it's just this weird mashup of intersectionality and assumptions. Yeah. You know, it becomes like a cycle. It ends up being counterproductive as well. Of When I've gone into meetings, I've tried to not be so obvious with my northern accent and go into kind of like more of an RP because I'm, I'm aware that I want to be taken seriously. <laughs> and then over time, because of the discussions that are happening now... You're going into meetings and you go, no, what they want is to hear your northern accent because then you're something different. So you're thinking, all right, shall I start dropping my vowels and start going, I love to watch BBC. Like It shouldn't be going from one side of the spectrum to the other that you're either having to try and hide your accent or you're having to stick so rigidly to it you know almost like david attenborough finding an animal on some far-off island and going oh what's this what listen to how she sounds isn't she interesting let's hear what she's got to say like i'm some sort of lizard on the galapagos so (laughs) yeah it goes again back to what we were saying of let's just have rather than a normal umbrella let's have an umbrella over all of them So speaking of making wild and generalised assumptions about a human being based on one tiny piece of information, me and Kate ask uh, a few questions to most of our guests at the end of each episode. Now, this one that I'm about to ask came about very organically, and we've discovered that it is a great way to learn about a person based on their answer. Um, yeah. Maisie, Adam, Diversify would like to know what's, what's your, your favourite? This is Disney. hilarious trying to do this online. What's Disney your favorite, movie. What's your favourite Disney, Disney movie? 
Well, what's my favourite Disney movie? Uh, Inside Out. Ooh. Oh. I don't know if you guys had the same thing when you went and saw it, but I went just being like, oh, new Disney film. I think it was like such a shit day weather-wise. So we went to the cinema and we watched them and we're like, oh, it'll be all right. And I was like, I feel like they've looked inside my head and my heart and put it into a cartoon. It felt very real. I've come out of hard-hitting Edinburgh shows less emotional than I did Inside Out. In fact, it's, it sort of says everything about what we were discussing at the very start of this podcast of taking something that we all feel or that is an elephant in the room and we all struggle to articulate ourselves and they've said it in such an obvious, which is what happens in comedy as well, such an obvious and accessible and light-hearted way that still resonates. And I think that's why, yeah, it's my favourite. I love it. That is actually a perfect uh, choice for you. Because usually it's like, you know, I loved Cinderella because I, I had know, an I said, I knew as soon as you asked it, I was like, oh, there's so many problematic ones. I feel like you're, you wear your heart on your sleeve and this is what you get and that's why you're inside out. I feel like that's what it is. Absolutely. And also Absolutely. we've just had 20 minutes talking about the fact that it's not all quote unquote black and white. How much of everything we feel and think is performative or put onto us by society. And that's yeah. that's what Inside Out's about. It's about the fact that we need anger and we need joy and we need everything. Yeah. Instead of just being like, oh, she's the angry black woman. She's the sad widow. Yeah. You know. I thought it was the best way of explaining that it's okay to not be okay. Mm. Yeah. I hear that slogan a lot of times and sort of I have to stop myself from rolling my eyes because I'm like, it's not as simple as that. It's not as simple as sometimes going, I'm not okay. But that film just normalised anger being a very valid emotion and sadness being just as valid emotion as joy. Like it's something that is part of you and if you didn't have it, it would be weird. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful. Also, Amy Poehler is amazing. I do. Next question uh, before we all burst into tears. What does activism mean to you? And do you think that you are an activist? Um, yes, uh, I think I am. But I think if I'm being honest with myself, I've only really realised what that means in this lockdown. I think, as we all know, this lockdown has brought a lot of issues to the forefront and a lot of voices being raised that have been suppressed and, and, and not been able to be raised for a long, long time. And the Black Lives Matter movement that we've seen has kind of been integral to my understanding, really, of what an activist truly means. Of it not being enough to be non-racist, you have to be actively anti-racist. I mean, the, the word is there in activist, in activism. It's, it's being active. But I think for so long when we hear things that we're being activists against, so something like racism, for so long we've assumed that racism is somebody calling someone a horrible name based off their skin colour, obvious racism, and to call that out, to go, excuse me, you shouldn't call that person this word, that's unacceptable, that's racist. That being essentially what an activist is. And I think so for so long, because I knew that, oh, well, if I saw that happening, I would say that. I'd go, excuse me, you can't do that. That's racist. I was going, yeah, I would be an activist because I know that I'm not racist and I know that I would call out racist behaviour. And when I say racist, I mean blatant racism when we see it in that obvious way. But what I wasn't understanding was the complexities that racism hides itself within, the systemic racism, the internal racism that we as white people will naturally have purely through being white and that has been a huge learning curve and i think that's why a lot of the conversation gets so heated because a lot of white people are still feeling incredibly attacked 
when you go through being white in some way or other you will be racist because of your privilege Mm. and so you have to look at yourself and rather than be non-racist you have to be actively anti-racist you sort of have to take that white fragility away you do and i think it was a huge learning point for me um it's not enough to go oh well when i see it in its most blatant form i'll call it out because that's not what black people need right now they need being actively anti-racist so it's about starting with yourself and then it's about starting with the structure that represents yourself so when we look at structural racism it comes from people who look like us three it comes from white people living in our privileged mindsets and therefore our privileged ways of of how we've done business of how we take in entertainment of how we perform entertainment of how we talk with each other of perceptions we have of people who do and don't look like us you know, you, you hear of these examples of people applying for a job or applying for a house and you see a name that isn't, in inverted commas, traditionally British and the perceptions that is already built up in a head because of that name. And that's not necessarily they jump into the conclusion of they're black and I don't like black people, but it's it's because of what you've taken in so far as a white person only exposed to very few black people. And when they were exposed, it was a certain archetype designed by a white person. So how can you possibly have a clean slate, open mind? You can't. So you have to look at that within yourself. So in answer to what being an activist is, it's that. It's accepting your white fragility or accepting your able-bodied fragility or whatever it is that puts you in that normal that we've been talking about on this podcast. Looking at that and going, right, what if I wasn't that? And what if I hadn't had those conditioning experiences you know that everyone hates the word privilege because they're like, are you saying that I've never had any struggle? They immediately think that it means that you live in a stately home with a silver spoon in your mouth. It doesn't. It sometimes just means the colour of your skin and the difficulties you have not experienced because of that. It doesn't mean you've experienced a life of luxury. It's a great way of explaining privilege. Do you fit into what is quote unquote normal? So is white considered normal? Is a man in your industry considered normal? Is straight considered normal? Is not having a disability considered normal? And that's what privilege is. It's that you're not something other than what society calls you normal. And I think that's a really nice way to, uh, accessible way to explain it to people. Um, Yeah. 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 We've gone full circle. It's beautiful. We've got one final question. If you want to just throw something in there, every episode we ask our guests to give us just a little bit of sunshine and especially at the moment even more so than our normal episodes the world is on fire um is there just a little spark of sunshine that you can give us to finish on a high note yeah for sure for me first of all I think it's really funny uh, and a great sort of nostalgic piece but secondly I guess in a wider way and maybe I'm at the risk of being a wankier way here We've spoken a lot about this current era can maybe change things going forward and, and in some ways that might be scary, in some ways it might not be. But I think we will, as humans, adapt. You know, when I was talking about my epilepsy of, turning, of learning to adapt with a new, a new set of circumstances. And so I thought I'd share this that I think shows that we can adapt. And it's Pete Tong, the Radio 1 DJ, yes. um, back in '95. Uh, and he's basically reading out his email address on Radio 1 and encouraging people to get in touch. 
It's very complicated, so here it comes. HTTP colon forward slash forward slash www.bbcnc.org.uk forward slash BBC TV forward slash P forward slash Tong forward slash index full stop HTML. I know it doesn't make sense, but if you've got a computer and you're out there on the internet, you'll understand what I mean. Um, <laughs> and I just love that because it's so reflective of its time. And it's also like, God, back then the internet was such a scary thing and we didn't really know how we were using it. But we adapt and it becomes our normal and we can use it for great advantages. And look at us now, we're, we're, we're speaking from three different homes. We can see each other, hear each other. It's then going to go out onto a podcast that will go into people's ears that they can listen to wherever they are. Again, I think this might sound really wanky that I've, I've used this as no, a metaphor. No, it's great. But I think it, it demonstrates that there can be something that is initially incredibly scary and new and challenging. Mm. And with a positive, we can adapt to this approach. It can become a normal and, and be be a fun thing, be a nice thing. And to add on to that as well, like, you know, obviously it's a really scary time at the moment with the pandemic and we're seeing all this violence on the streets. You're seeing Black Lives Matter. You're seeing this racism, like, coming to the forefront and it feels so never-ending, this onslaught of people being racist all the time. But that's a reaction to the fact that people who have never had voices have voices and they don't want to listen to it. Mm -hmm. But some of us are listening to it and when you look at the amount of people who, particularly in America, came out onto the streets, I guess what I'm saying is this whole thing about adapting is th it feels really tough at the moment, but that's because we're getting the reaction to this amazing thing that's happening. And this amazing thing that's happening is people are being heard. Yeah. Okay, we've got uh, plugs. Plugs, plugs, plugs. Is there anything you're doing at the moment, Maisie, that you want to tell us about just to finish off? Oh, God, no, no, nothing at all. <laughs> um, I will be presumably writing a lot and I'm doing stuff on social media a lot and I do some online gigs. I don't know if gigs will be back up and running in, in, in autumn. But um, yeah, I guess just a link to, to my socials, which is Maisie Adam, pretty much on everything. I do a podcast with Tom Lucy with Radio X and that's called That's a First, where we talk about people's first times of everything and anything. Um, from first song they wrote to first kiss to first time they accidentally saw the granddad naked. So it's it's a fun one. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. So everyone go follow Maisie Adam. Uh, we are on the tweet, tweet at Diversify Pod and the Insta at Diversify Podcast. I think. Yes, that's correct. You, we've said it many times now. It's I'm sure it's right. Yes, we are on Diversify. Kate is on Twitter at Kate Lois Elliott, two L's, two T's. And that's also Instagram. Yes. But yeah. Yes. That's, yeah. Thanks so I much. I think for that was me. perfect. Like, you've been the perfect guest. Ten you know, when you say an answer <laughs> and you go, that if people hear like just that clip, they're going to be like, oh, so she hates male comedians, does she? And you go, oh, God. But don't worry. But that, that's, that's where I stand on it.